Welcome to Thinking Ahead. I'm your host, Carter Phipps, and we're exploring the movements, trends, people, and ideas that are shaping our evolving world. Make sure you subscribe today on your favorite podcast platform, and most of all, I hope you enjoy today's episode. It will come as no surprise to listeners when I say that we are a divided country. Political polarization today is worse than at any time since the Civil War, or so experts tell us, and I see no reason to argue with them. In 2012, I co-founded the Institute for Cultural Evolution to, you know, among other things, work on this very issue, political polarization. It's a significant issue for the country. It's a conundrum, a a wicked problem, as they say. And a wicked problem means a problem that has so many interconnected and entangled issues culturally and economically that have led to it, that solving it seems incredibly difficult. You know, we hear today about solutions to this issue, like we need to reform the two-party system, break it up. Or we need to reform campaign finance, and that will have a huge impact. Or if we just got rid of gerrymandering, or just got rid of certain rules in the Senate, you know, things like that. Now, all of those may be drivers of polarization, but let's be honest, even if they were solutions, changing them will require a new political environment. So to solve the issue, you have to solve the issue, right? That's the nature of a sort of entangled, wicked problem. But despite all this, polarization is not going to go go on forever. Sooner or later, a change will come, for better or for worse. And I'd like it to be for better. And so on this show, I want to explore the causes and the consequences of this polarization, where it's come from, where we're at today, and what we can do about it to plant the seeds of a better future. And in order to do that, I want to speak with experts from different vantage points along America's political spectrum, and people have different perspectives on how we've got here and what we can do to go, how we can go forward and create a, a better future. You know, America has gone through periods in its history of significant polarization and other periods of relative unity and consensus. So as we sort of dive deeper and deeper into a kind of polarized electorate, what can we do to sort of envision what a better future might look like? So for this episode of Thinking Ahead, I'm speaking to James Pearson, president of the William E. Simon Foundation and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's someone who's thought long and hard about this issue of political polarization, so much so that he's He authored a book in 2015 called Shattered Consensus, The Rise and Decline of America's Post-War Political Order. So where are we headed politically in this country? Is the two-party system going to continue indefinitely? How soon might we expect a change in the political winds? Are we headed for the so-called fourth turning? Is some kind of catastrophe inevitable? in order for all of this to break up and change? Do we need, as some have suggested, a massive political crisis before the nation is ripe for change? And if we need that, I mean, what was 2020? Today, we're talking about polarization and the future of American politics. Let's welcome James Pearson to Thinking Ahead. All right, well, James Pearson, welcome to Thinking Ahead. Thank you, Carter, thank you. Great, great to have you on today. And and. So you're someone uh, who's written a lot about where we are in American political history at this point, and you've uh, you've I know your book Shatter Consensus was a few years ago, uh, and so obviously things have changed since then, <laughs> no doubt. That was during the Obama years, I think. Uh, but nevertheless, you, in, in that book and in subsequent talks, I, I've seen you sort of lay out these sort of you know economic and political regimes over American the course of American history. So I'd love to like get a, a sort of, in, in your mind, uh, a you are here picture of where we are as a society, as a country uh, at this point in, you know, in, in history. And, and it seems a significant time too with COVID and coming out of just beginning to maybe come out in, in the spring here in 2021. It seems a significant time because if there's ever a narrative or regime change, this would be a natural moment for it. 
who knows? But anyway, I'd love to get your sense of, of how you, where you see our trajectory, where we are. Yeah. Well, I'll, small I'll question. Try. <laughs> you know, I wrote that book in 2015, now almost six years ago. And it was based on a couple of articles I had written on, you know, the development of different regimes in American history, the Jeffersonian regime, the Civil War regime, the Great Depression and the New Deal regime. Right. And, uh, you know, after 70 or 80 years, where do we go next? And I could see the polarization coming out of the Obama years. And I thought uh, various events in the 2020s might lead to some resolution and new regime. Yes. In fact, things are even worse than I thought uh, when I wrote that book. Yes. Uh, Because, you know, the, the polarization uh, that led to Trump's victory and then the response to Trump yeah. was something greater than I'd even imagined. Yeah. So all those voters who went out and voted for Donald Trump were kind of voting to break up the existing regime. Yeah. So, um, so now we have a kind of a polarized situation between all those people who voted for Trump and all those people who voted against him. Very few people actually voted for Biden. They yeah. all went out and said, we have to get rid of Trump. Yeah. And we had a higher turnout in the last election, I think, than we've had since before World War One. It, it drove voter turnout, boy. The, yeah, I think voter turnout went from about 130 million in 2016 to 160 million. Wow. And, uh, and, and what would be the nat- the natural would be just a f- probably a few million more in terms of the Yeah, you might have added right? 5 million or something like that and so yeah. on. But that... That change was astronomical. I mean, Trump got 10 million more votes than Hillary Clinton got in 2016. Uh, Obviously, Biden got even more. So, uh, you know, the hatred for Trump was intense. But, of course, the hatred on the side of the Trump people for the liberals and the leftists is great as well. Yeah. And it's accelerating because people on the right are are seeing now that people on the left are, are not only disagree with them, but yeah. they're trying to shut them up and get rid of them. Yeah, yeah. And that is going to create even more polarization by reaction. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, a country can function if people disagree within limits. Yeah. It's hard for it to function if people hate one another. Yes. And that's where we've gone in America. Yes, yes. Yeah, we could ask the question, how did, how, did, how did this happen that we got here? Because after all, we're a pretty prosperous country and people – usually you don't fall out into these terrible fights when there's prosperity. That's right. So I don't fully have an answer as to how this happened. It could be a situation where a family that's lived together for a long time just gets so much on one another's nerves that they hate one another. <laughs> and, you know, this kind of uh, political clash has been going on to the point uh, where people are ready to have a big time fight. Yeah. yeah. On the other hand, the sides are so roughly so evenly matched yeah, uh, it's going to be difficult for any of them to deliver a knockout blow. Yeah. So and, and that's often how big big changes have happened in the yeah. past. There's been a knockout blow, right? I mean, that's yeah. Like, so something like that that knocks out the other side or knocks them down, some big event of some kind. Yeah. Like the Great Depression, for example. Right. Right. The South seceding, for right. example. Right. Uh, that that would be the case if you kind of look at these two parties they appear to represent almost different nations, different countries, Mm -hmm. because their strengths are in different part of the country. You know, the, the, the Democrats and the liberal strength on, in the coast coastal areas and the large cities, the Republican strength in rural areas and in between. Yeah. One of the things that happens in politics is that as one side generates a majority in an area, it tends to feed on itself yeah. so that a kind of a bare majority becomes a larger majority and then a larger majority still, because as they gain strength, it becomes difficult to dissent against it. Yeah. So through that process, as each side has gained strength in different areas, they've reinforced that strength. Yeah. So it's gone from a 52% strength to a 60% strength to a 70% strength. And yeah. so you have these regions uh, really disliking one another. Yeah. They do represent different theories of the United States. 
Yeah. And in, in the sense that the Democrats represent this diversity theory. Yeah. Uh, the United States represents a, a collection of these different groups. Yes, right. That should be represented in government and in industry and in television and everything, roughly in proportion to their population. Yeah. And we have to recognize them all as equal groups. Yeah. Where Republicans tend to represent what you might call the old nation, the old Protestant nation. Yes. Of, uh, you know, individualists, the small town, yeah. Protestantism and that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. And so they're pointing at different conceptions of the country. Yeah that seem to be difficult to resolve. Now, of course, all these things that have happened, tell me if I'm talking too much, of course, you can edit this, all these things that have happened in the last 30 or 40 years have reinforced this because mm -hmm. when I grew up, we had three networks. They all said the same thing. <laughs> they all had roughly the same kind of programs on. Yeah. They all broadcast the same news. The same yeah. events were covered. There was no disagreement what the news is or yeah. was. Uh, there are national publications that told us what books to read. The New York Times and a few other places dictated what the news was. Yeah. And it all kind of followed. So there was that was the consensus really of the 1950s that came yeah. out of the yeah. out of the Great Depression and World War II. It's very interesting in the sense that if you look at America in 1929, you have a very small federal government. Yeah. It spends about 2% of GDP. Uh, most people don't pay any taxes. Yeah. The federal government basically runs the post office, some law enforcement and a customs service and not much else. Right. And the United States is kind of an isolationist power with not much of a military. Yeah. Yeah. Fast forward 16 years. Now you have a significant welfare state a significant tax collection system, 91% tax on the highest earners. Yeah, right. Uh, uh, you know, as I say, you have you have all these agencies that have now been created, Social Security yeah. and unemployment. Yeah. And you have a flip in party control. The Democrats are now the dominant party representing this regime. And the United States is now the great superpower, the great military governing the world. It, it's amazing how fast that you, you just, I mean, obviously wars can do that, but it, you forget how yes, fast. I, yes, I think that, that, that would be the happen. point that in a matter of 16 years, <laughs> we flipped American yeah. history on its head. Yeah. Not only in domestic policy, but also in foreign policy. But even more unbelievably, we come out of this with this consensus I just talked about. Yeah, right. This large so consensus that, that there was certainly dissent from it, but it yeah. was a large consensus. It wasn't yeah, so, a, it wasn't, you know, Eisenhower yeah. comes into office and a lot of Republicans say, you have to repeal the new deal. He yeah. says, nothing to it. We're not yeah. going to do that. Yeah. The public would throw us out if we tried to do that. Yeah. Right. It's uh, like the regime had completely changed. Yeah. I mean, it, you talk about in your book, how almost similar to the way in which, you know, uh, you know, slavery just kind of the the Civil War sort of ridded, you know, rid sorry, rid, rid slavery of of out of the out of the political conversation completely. I mean, that was the end of it, and and the whole kind of cultural mindset of the South sort of uh, you sort of went out of American politics yeah, sure. as a legitimate, you know, and that was a, obviously that was a positive thing, and and then the Republican Party sort of took over for for a significant time. And then same thing in 29, you know, in 32, essentially you have yeah. Roosevelt come in with this and, and then kind of a certain type of small government laissez-faire capitalism, sort of it, 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 in, in the way it was practiced then also sort of ends at that era. And, and you have another long period. It, and so you have these kind of long periods, but, but we're, we sort of are an in-between period, it feels like now. Is exactly well, right. yeah. So, you know, I mean, it reminds thought, me of the fourth turning. Uh, yeah, so various people it, have written about yeah. this. And my thought when I wrote the book was, okay, yeah. we're going to re we're, we're coming into something like this. Yes. Right. I'm not convinced of that. Okay. Uh, Good. Good. <laughs> Interesting. As things have gone on. So yes, you're right. I mean, if you look back to the civil war, in 1850, the South was the dominant section of the country. Right. Politically, economically, they exported cotton. It was our great export, right. obviously based upon slavery. Yeah. The most expensive real estate in the country was in the Mississippi Delta. Is that true? Yeah. That's, that's amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. So now, suddenly in the war, this is all liquidated. And now the South is a backward 
kind of sub-colonial section in the United States. Right. That's and it right. stays that way for 100 years. Yeah, right. So, um, but I think the point about the Great Depression and the New Deal is how quickly this changed, how quickly it was accepted. Yeah. That's kind yeah. of the surprising thing, how quickly this is accepted and we generate out of this, this kind of consensus of the 1950s. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, the 1960s played a role in kind of disturbing this. Well, that started to break it up in some yeah. ways. I, think. And, I, I want to suggest more about that later, but I want to get your yeah. your further thoughts so, before I do <laughs> You know, one of the things, so Ronald Reagan, one of the things that irritated so many liberals about Ronald Reagan is he brought back this pre-Great Depression idea about free markets and government's the problem and all yes. that. Yes, yes. Everybody thought that was dead for good. Yeah. And uh, the Goldwater defeat and debacle seemed to re- uh, reconfirm that. Yeah. This is totally right. dead. This is right. never going to work. So right. it did come back. And but that, sort of more um, partially rhetorically to some degree. I mean, he didn't, it, it, he cut taxes. He, I mean, it, you know, I right. studied economics in the eighties and the budget, federal budget exploded. It wasn't exactly <laughs> the welfare wasn't cut social security. So yeah. actually he appointed a commission that saved social security. Right. Uh, so, yeah. So it was, it was somewhat rhetorically yeah. rather than programmatic. Yes. He had a couple of things he wanted to do. You know, fight the Cold War and get yes. the economy going again. Yeah, the rest right. of it, he wasn't going to fight very much. That's right. Yeah. So, um, and but that kind of shifted. I mean, I think of Reagan as, I mean, I, I, you can see Reagan as like almost like a fundamental paradigm shift from Roosevelt. Or I think in the way you see it more is Reagan is a is a kind of uh, interlude in this yeah. larger narrative. So, say, yeah. so is that correct? Is that like yeah. like we're still in that larger narrative and we haven't changed yeah. yet? But Reagan was a, a kind of a shift in the middle of it. Yeah, the Dems came back pretty hard. Clinton. Yeah. You know, you could say a lot about Clinton. You know, he did save the Democratic Party because obviously democrats today often forget i uh, you know that that uh in 84 they won one state i mean can you imagine one state i know (laughs) so he you know he you know he kept the programs in place but shifted the rhetoric yes you know one thing about clinton is that uh you know ronald reagan carried california twice yeah i think bush in 88 carried california right Right. And in the 1990s, California had a couple of Republican governors, Pete Wilson yeah. and Duke Magian. Sure. Right? And so we went through a very polarized era. I lived in California those yeah, days. So, very polarized. And immigration was the polarization. Yeah. So Wilson rod. tried to stop all that. But yeah. California during the Clinton years totally flipped from yeah. being maybe a yeah. partly Republican competitive state yeah. to a totally Democratic state. Yes. So yes. I don't think a Republican has won a statewide office aside from Schwarzenegger yeah. really since you know, like 1998 or something like that. And Schwarzenegger yeah. is kind of an exception. That He's sort of an independent in in, right. more, in many ways. Yeah. So Clinton flipped several states like that. Yeah. Mid, uh, Michigan was flipped. Uh, some of the Midwestern to Illinois flipped. California flipped. Yeah. Washington, Oregon flipped. So I'm not exactly certain how he did that or, or uh, but... Certainly, he, he he did succeed in doing that. Yeah. Of course, that that plays into a little bit of the polarization because these these states flipped to the Democratic side as other states were flipping Republican. Yeah. Gingrich flipped the South to the Republican side. Yeah, right. Nineteen ninety four. So, you know, I think they're only well, about- another how fast regimes change. Just very briefly, we were just talking before we started. I'm from Oklahoma, and when I was growing up, I mean, I would say Mickey Edwards was my congressman in my little town. And we, he was the only Republican congressman in the whole state, you know, uh, because, but it was a democratic uh, right. uh, state. It was a very fully democratic state. Uh, it wasn't, no one foresaw some huge change in 1978 or when in the 80, when Reagan came in, it was suddenly like, Oh my God, it, that, and, and that happened to a number of States very quickly. They went from being largely democratic yeah. and the kind of Roosevelt Democrats and the two, two Southern Republicans. That was a very interesting, again, it just speaks to how fast sometimes things can change. Yeah. And mm. how culturally different a lot of these States have become. Yeah. You yeah. know, I think sub Rosa, a lot of these Republican States see this democratic coalition, this diversity coalition, as I call it, yeah. as a big time threat to them. Yeah. 
And they're kind of afraid that's going to take them over to some degree. Right. Like demographically, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, yeah. hey, look, in the last election, you know, I was shocked to see that Arizona and Georgia went for Biden. Not only that, they both elected Democratic senators. Yeah. Well, I, I'm yeah. less surprised. I mean, I, I could see Arizona moving very quickly because it's just Cal- California is sort of dumb. You know, California, there's this outflow out of California. It just is happening. You know, it happened on the Pacific Northwest. Now it's happening in Nevada and Arizona and Colorado. I live in Colorado. Colorado was a purple state. It's not, it's sure. not purple. It's not even purple anymore. It's know. blue. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in Georgia, maybe it's just Atlanta. It's so urban. But, uh, but, but likewise, Ohio, then, you know, you get these other Midwestern states that are leaning much more Republican in Florida yeah. too. So it's, you, you don't seem to get, you don't seem to get one clear trend yet. I mean, maybe yeah. we will in four years, maybe it will become clear. Yeah, you know, exactly. So the kind of stability of, in the system that we somewhat come to expect that yeah. happens within these regimes is starting to blow up and become more unpredictable. Yeah. Yeah. It's and, like everyone knows where they their their place is. Yeah. It, it's like in, in a narrowly fought contest, it's like it gets more and more bitter somehow yeah. and and well, less and less yeah. gets done. You know, there's more. Now, I know some people think, well, that's not a bad thing. And but but there are certain I think, as you've pointed out. It, you know, maybe the government or doesn't have to do certain a, a lot, you know, maybe it can just sort of continue on it, it relatively indefinitely. I, I would sort of argue that you can't really for too long, but, but, but if it, but if it becomes very important to do certain things, suddenly you need, you need some consensus. You need, you need, you need some kind of people to agree on something and uh, that things becomes harder and harder, you know? Yeah. Things have to get done. Yeah. You know, we have to enforce the law. We might want to enforce our borders. I'm not sure about that anymore right. uh, because that's, that's extremely a, more, more of a contested but, issue. Um, yeah. You're right. But as I say, you know, things can work if people just disagree. Yeah. But if they really uh, hate one another, dislike one another, it's getting difficult. And I, yeah. I think that's roughly where we are. And, and Trump was like the first person I felt first person elected where I felt like he was almost elected on dislike of the other side. Right. And, exactly. and I think that's just kind of continued now. It's almost like that's almost seems like it will be the norm until something changes. He got elected largely because of the hatred for Hillary Clinton and yeah. what she represented. Yeah. Just right. think about all she'd been on the national scene for 25 years. She'd been a very polarizing figure and people went out and voted for Trump because they hated her. And now all these people turn around and voted against Trump uh, yeah. for the same reason. And it seems like and, we're in that cycle. Keep getting this thing yeah. going. Yeah, so exactly. uh, until somehow it's interrupted, I would say, you know, if we uh, we could point to two other very big events, maybe three that have happened. Yeah. Um, one event is obviously the stock market boom. Yes. Of the last 40 years. Yes. So, you know, from the Great Depression, up until 1980 or 82, the stock market did not improve in real terms, adjusted infla- inflation adjusted terms. Yes. Basically, the stock market peaked out at 384 in 1929 on the Dow. Yeah. It peaked out around 800 in 1980, 81, 82 on the Dow. You throw in inflation over that 50 year period and it's nothing. Can, can you imagine? I mean, just let's, let's put a pin in that from, I mean, uh, now the market goes down for three days and I see articles on Bloomberg that say retirements are in trouble. And it's like, right. everyone's pan- everyone's like, Oh my God, you know, the world is coming to an end if it go down for four days in a row. And it's like, and you, you're talking about 50 years where it basically didn't go up at all. No, I mean, it, that, it, yeah. In 1966, it crossed a thousand. Yeah. In 1981, 82, 15 years later, 16 years later, it's at 800. It, and you've had, you know, 40, 50 percent inflation in the meantime. It, it, that's, it's just amazing. I saw someone the other day write something I thought was very wise. And this is not, you know, politically left or politically right. But he was sort of saying that stock markets have essentially become a political utility almost like they just they can't like the Fed and governments left and right. If there's anything they agree on, the stock market can't go down. You know, yeah. it needs to not go. And, and he, he was sort of making the argument that until it does until something fundamentally changed in this sort of economic regime of the stock market. And I'm not saying I want that. I'm just saying he was making the argument until something really changes. It's very hard for anything 
the other it's very like the other it's very hard for the, the fundamental political winds to shift in any kind of significant way because it sort of that sort of ratchets in this period in the way that people don't think yeah. about that but it's very influential yeah. you know and, and it's something both sides really agree on yeah. but if it changed if we had ma- if we had significant inflation i think that would be the thing that would really change it that might that would be a bit that would be a wholesale shift in the fed that would change that would just change a lot and i think that's always an interesting thing to consider. Yeah, I, I think if you were to define the last 40 years, yeah, like 1881, 82 down to the present, that's 40 years. Yeah. The big thing, big event would be the stock market surge. Yeah. Yeah. Just incredible. Well, and of course, I mean, if you look at interest rates long term from 1945, yeah, from 1945 to 1982, interest rates and inflation steadily went up. You just look at the chart. It starts going up, and then in the 70s, it accelerates as inflation goes up and interest rates go up. Mortgage rates were 20% in 1981, 82. I think the 10-year bond was 15, 16%. Know, just and a- then in 1982, it's, they both start going down, down, yeah. down. And the stock market, of course, and the bond market yeah. over that 40 years is going up, up, up. Yeah. And as you say, we can't tolerate much of a decline because anytime it starts, yeah. The, the central bank comes in, uh, uh, prints money, yeah. expands credit, yeah. and the interest rates go down. So, you know, the 10-year bond, you know, a few months ago was trading below 1%. Yeah, yeah. It's now about 1.4%. I, I think it went up from 1.5% to 1.5%. And the markets totally panicked. They panicked. I know exactly. I know, which seems sort of funny historically, but but you know, given the amount of debt in the economy, given the amount, you you sort of understand why there's concern. But yeah. it, it it also doesn't. How do you how do you how do how do we how do you have an economy that functions in in a market that's afraid to let interest rates go to one five? Yeah. You know, and it's totally afraid to have any recession at all. Yeah, exactly. Because exactly. of the political blowback. Yeah. So the central bank and the federal government, the central bank creates credit, prints money, and the federal government runs these giant deficits. So we have both Keynesianism and we have monetarism operating yeah. uh, together jointly and on steroids. Yeah. 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 So we have huge debt enabled partly by these interest rates. So I, I believe what you just said is true. This, this whole regime is somewhat structured around those stock markets and interest rates and inflation. Yeah. And it's probably going to go on until the thing blows. Yeah. And and what would blow it? I mean, I, yeah. I think inflation would blow it maybe, but maybe it would. I mean, but it, it, how, because it seems like we've had all these shocks, but it can't really uh, yeah. have a, that much of an impact. And I'm not saying, again, it's not necessarily, we don't necessarily want it to blow up, but sometimes it's worth it's worth thinking about whether the, dynamics that would sort of bring a halt to that sort of confluence of factors. Yeah. Well, let's say this, it's not permanent. Right. There right? you go. <laughs> so interest rates of, uh, you know, long-term interest rates of one or 2% and a continued escalation of debt, government debt and consumer debt. That probably can't be, that's not going to be permanent. Right. So yeah. at some point it ends, we just don't know when Yes. Right. or how it comes it. to an end. Yeah. Um, but if you think about it, we've had in 2008 and in 2020, two significant economic events causing deep recessions. And both of these were black swan events. Now black swan events aren't supposed to happen very often, but to have two black swan events in a decade, that maybe that's beginning to be a pattern. Yeah. Yeah. So, in other words, whatever takes this out, yeah, is somehow going to come out of the blue, right? It's not going to be foreseen very well. Yeah. After the fact, we'll say, "Oh, yeah, we should have seen this." Yeah. As yeah. in two thousand and eight in the real estate bubble. Yeah. So, hey, look, I mean, in the midst of this COVID situation, the federal government is, you know, borrowing like mad. Yeah. yeah. I suppose you could say they have to. Yeah. Uh, but they're not paying a lot of attention to the debt. And yeah. the Federal Reserve is creating enormous amounts of credit. Now, one of the problems people say the Federal Reserve is, is printing money. 
It's not quite. Uh, it's not quite printing money. It's no, they're different. creating credit. Yes. And the problem is that it's creating all this credit, but it's not being used. Yeah. I mean, for the credit yeah. to be useful, the banks have to draw on this credit to make loans. Well, it doesn't appear they're actually doing that much of that because they can't find good loans to make and so on. So yeah. it's, that's it's, slow the it's not as expansionary as it otherwise would be, I yeah. guess, is what we're saying. Right. Yeah, right. So they keep doing it and it has like, like just like a narcotic has less and less yeah. of an effect. You yeah. do have long-term structural things. Productivity is gradually declining. That doesn't help. No. Nope. And economic growth is slowing yeah. down decade by decade. Yeah. So I think that the last time I think we had a 6% year GDP growth may have been in 1984. Yeah, right. Last time we had 4% might have been around 1998. And the last time we had 3%, you know, might have been in 2006, 2007, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So decade by decade, the rate of growth is slowing down. Mm-hmm. We're somewhat making up for it. And productivity is going down too, which is a piece of that aspect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you attribute that up- to demographics or do you, what's no, your... I don't know. You know, the economists fight and argue about this. Yes. You know, technology is uh, probably an aspect of it. Yeah. We, we think that the computer and the internet should be improving tech, uh, productivity, but it doesn't appear to be doing that. Yeah. I mean, some people yeah. think that there it's there's a measurement issue. Uh, I don't, you know, well, I don't feel like I know enough. Services to have a comment and on technology. It. Yeah. We don't know how to measure it like we used to. Yes. Factory output and so yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there is a thought that we're using the internet to waste time. Right. <laughs> That's it. It's all the wasted time on the internet. I love that. <laughs> so there, there certainly is that idea that the internet is supposed to improve products. It's definitely true in 2020. <laughs> We're just using it to waste time. <laughs> and, and, you know, that may be true. So, but, you know, so you have you, this- you think there are technological transformations on the horizon with, I don't know, you know, self-driving cars, the, the battery revolution, the energy, you know, are, are there significant? Because some people say, well, you get into a situation like we're in now where you have this tremendous debt. There's various things that can get out of it. But one of the, one of the more one of the better things, one of the things that's more desirable is you have some massive productivity shift driven by technological gains. I think this was true. We had this in the 1840s, I think, or something, 18, I can't remember the historical time when you had uh, a certain driven by, I think at the time must have been the railroads, but but it, 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 are, are there technological transformations on the horizon that could be so impactful that they could sort of drive the kind of productivity gains that could change the inequality equation, uh, equation change the debt equation. Do you, do you, see, do you see anything well, like that? You know, that's a good question. Typically, huge amounts of debt are taken care of by inflation. Right. So that's how we get rid of debt. That's how we got rid of the World War II debt in the 1970s. We right. kind of yeah. semi, we grew it, partly grew it away, yeah. but we also partly inflated it away. Yeah. That's been yeah. the tried and true technique of governments over the centuries. Yeah. You know, inflate the debt away. That would be a problem because, you know, to the extent we start inflating, interest rates will follow. Yeah. That will slow down growth and that will do a lot of other things. Yeah. That yeah. will be harmful. No, no You'd current, no, no existing president wants that. They yeah, may want that in the future look. or when they're not in office, but they don't want that when they're in office. Yeah. In the end, <laughs> growth probably depends upon productivity heavily. Yes. Robert Gordon has written this big book. He's a professor of economics at Northwestern who says that we don't have anything on the horizon that will reproduce the kind of productivity we had between the end of the Civil War and, say, 1950. And what were those? Basically, electricity. Yeah. Yeah. So we invent electricity in that period. Then we have all these numerous applications. Yes. From electricity. Yeah. A whole so, world yeah. erupts out yeah, of that. Yeah, exactly. So you have the automobile, and then you get highways, and you have sewing machines, and you have the radio, and you have airplanes, and you have you know all sorts of materials for war in, in addition. So yeah. you have you have applications to this that go on for 60, 70, 80 years yeah. that improve productivity, standard of living, particularly in America, because we survived those two wars. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know, it begins to slow down productivity in the 1960s and 70s. 
as these as the applications from electricity begin to decline and disappear. Right. And the internal combustion engine, I guess we yeah, can say from that there. Of course, you know, the computers <laughs> obviously dependent on electricity yeah. too. Yeah, sure. So uh, you have you have all these great breakthroughs which improve the standard of living. Are we doing that now? Can we do that? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't I don't have the answer to that, but if we're gonna get economic growth in the we future, need something. Yeah. We probably need something in terms of breakthrough. Yeah. I don't know what it is. I can't see that far ahead. And there are people who study this. Yeah. But, you know, back to your question, of course, you know, we're having this polarization take place partly because of some of these things. Now, everybody has can get their news and their entertainment from their own sources. Yeah. They, right. they don't rely upon, you know, collective sources very much. They can do it totally differently from their neighbor. Yeah. Uh, and you know, as a consequence, people don't have a lot to talk about. They can be occupied. <laughs> right. On the, and so, you know, you, you begin to get these divergences. Now, beneath this, you could say also something like this. So all these are all these things are up in the air. But you could ask the question, does the United States really a nation anymore? Yeah, I know you've spoken about this. I wanted yeah, to get so, to this issue. Yeah, how do you? Yeah, so what is a nation? Uh, now, if we we paint in broad strokes, there's mm-hmm. danger in that. But, you know, from the time of the Constitutional Convention, 1788, and the Revolution, um, down to the Civil War, the metaphor in place was usually union. Yeah. The union is the sacred thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the revolution and the constitution, you know, created this union among states, a little bit like a marriage that has some difficulties yeah. and problems, but we always iron out the union. Yeah. And Daniel Webster and others and Abraham Lincoln talked very mystically about the American union. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And basically what they said to the South is if you're going to break up the union because of slavery, well, then you can't have slavery anymore. Right. Simple as that. Right. So, you know, we had the Civil War, and after the Civil War, in that period to the Great Depression, World War II, we get a different metaphor in use, and that metaphor is the nation. Right, okay. The United States is now a nation. Yes. And what is a nation? A nation is a people. Okay. And it's a people that's represented by a government. Okay. And the people select the government, and and the government is responsive to this people. Yes. Whatever that is. And how how do you define this people? Well, that's a good question. Could be ethnic. You know, it could be equality in the Declaration of Independence and all that. Yeah. And that is that is a rubric. And of course, we get a lot of things. We get a national anthem in this period. We get the Pledge of Allegiance in this period. A a kind of national, a a sort of a. Well, I would say maybe a sort of a, a healthy nationalism forms around the idea of yes. this. this so, thing. And, and the westward expansion was part of that, right? Because we're expanding the nation. And then there's some unhealthy aspects of it, too. Of course, like, there like, you know, is a kind of xenophobia attached yeah, right. to it. Patriotism can go too yeah. far. And, and a lot of immigration during this area. I guess, you know. And, you know, I think you have the Civil War, a communal event. Yeah. Everybody yeah. participates. People yeah. die, all the rest. <laughs> yeah. And then on the bookend and on the other end, you have World War II. Everybody participates. Yeah. People die. It's a yeah. very symbolic, a, nas- a national effort. No one's untouched, right? Yeah. That's what's and, in, and, but, and all right. sorts of things come out of this. Yeah. Problems yeah. are solved. And we get great momentum coming out of it. So yeah. as a nation and as a kind of a government representing the people. So there's a kind of consensus underlying the idea of a nation. Yeah. We're kind of all in this thing together. We may disagree, but we're all a people represented by the system. And I think that this, especially the Second World War, helps to bring all those immigrants into the system. Yeah. Because, of course, a lot of the mythology coming out of World War II is- That's interesting, right. You know, all the all the GIs and so on, they're, you know, they're Italians, they're Poles, they're Jews, they're Catholics. A lot of the diversity of the country was suddenly thrust together, together in a way that the maybe they hadn't saved been the world. That's yeah. interesting, so, yeah. So- I never, that I never, that is a factor giving the United States great momentum as a nation state coming out of yeah. World War II. Yeah. And, you know, I would say this period from the 60s on is gradually taking this thing apart. Yeah. As a functioning nation state. 
Yeah. I think the diversity ideology kind of undermines it to some degree. Yeah. And the fights yeah. we have over this undermines it. Mass immigration begins to undermine it to some degree. Yeah. Yeah. All these other things going on, the internet, the different channels of information and news and so on, from Fox to CNN, all this is kind of undermining this idea of a people. Of a, of a, a common people, of yeah, a common exactly. national. Yeah, right, exactly. So we develop, we're developing something new. Yeah. Post-national, right. post-union, post-national. Uh, this is a a jurisdiction. It's got borders. It's got a government. Interesting. Borders yeah. a little bit porous, people moving in and out. But what is it? Yeah. Is it a nation state any longer? What is it? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think that's somewhat up in the air. So uh, I mentioned two big things happening underlying this polarization. One is the whole stock market business. Yeah, which is economic. enriched, which has been unequal. Well, it's been it, the top fifty percent naturally benefit more from a stock market expansion. Well, not only top fifty percent, but in the top ten top, and top five, and top, top one, five or ten percent. If you look at those numbers, <laughs> exactly. 19, yeah. 1980. Yeah. But yeah. after all, who owns stocks? Who owns bonds? Sure. Who owns real estate? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. So you have that, obviously. Yeah. And then you have the technology and then you have this other thing going on at the same time, this kind of disintegration of the nation yeah, going on yeah. as well. Yeah. And, you know, how, how is this arrested? Well, it was arrested somewhat in the past. These things, you know, the Civil War arrested that problem, created momentum for the future. Yeah. The Great Depression, World War II arrested that, that regime, yeah. provided momentum for the future. Yeah. What does it now? What does it now? Yeah. And, and do you have to have a catastrophe or crisis to kind of, to create some new consensus? Because it, it's not the best way to evolve no. overall, to, to have massive catastrophes, even though the result can be positive. We yeah. can acknowledge that. We can see that historically. But it's it's still it's still dangerous. And it gets more dangerous, I feel like, the further we go yeah, technologically sure. in history. In the age of nuclear weapons, high we, like we have to find new ways for the yeah, culture to evolve. I mean, that's our, my think tank called the Institute for Cultural Revolution for that reason. To some degree, we have to find new ways for the culture to evolve without without going through these massive crises followed by periods of maybe stag, you know preceded by periods of stagnation or kind of stuckness. Exactly. So you know, uh, I think the, all those points are true. We can't have a war now. You know, various people say that nations are formed by wars and revolutions. Yeah, historically, so, I suppose there's some truth to that. But the United States, very good example yeah, of that. Yeah, I just went right. through them. France, right. very good example of that. Yeah, uh, yeah. So all these big events create nations. Yeah. And without them, do they begin to disintegrate? Yeah. And fall apart, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so, you know, what would be a kind of a solution to it? I mean, look, there are a lot of things that are going on. Everybody who's seen the play Hamilton. I don't know if you've seen it. But I've seen I, it. Yeah, seen I loved it. I've seen it a couple of times. It's very good. I don't exactly understand the craze around it, but it's pretty good. But of course, everybody knows that we moved the Capitol to Washington, D.C. as the bargain between Jefferson and Hamilton. Sure. And Jefferson wanted to put the Capitol in a, in a place, you know, midway between the North and South. So the South would have some influence over it. Yeah. Well, okay. You know, 200 plus years later, where is the center of this country now? probably somewhere out where you grew up. Yeah, right. right? It's no longer in Washington. <laughs> no. And so you have this this giant government in Washington, and it's all, of course, a Democratic city. Yeah, sure. 95% vote for the Democrats. Yeah. The bureaucracy yeah. is all Democrats. Yeah. All the suburban counties around there are Democrats. Yeah. Virginia is because yeah, of that. Exactly. Yeah. It's a Democratic capital. Yeah. Now, that's what Jefferson wanted to prevent. Right. So now, you know, if you paste this on top of it, you know, people living out in Oklahoma are looking at this capital in Washington and it's run by Democrats. Yeah. It's like a foreign country. Yeah. This is not ours anymore. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah. We can send our, we can elect people and send them there, but they're sitting on top of this Democratic structure and they can't do anything because yeah. the, the Democrats want to get rid of them. Yeah. And that's what they see happen to Trump. We sent our guy there. That's the feeling of the, when people talk about the deep state, which is, you know, I think is sort of conspiratorial to some degree, but there, there but there's some truth in the sense that there's this kind of monolithic sort of, yeah, well, you know, Trump bureaucracy there, and that, that has its own up. institutional interest. 
I mean, I would argue it probably has its own institutional interests separate of either party to some degree. Yeah, but, well, I think that's yeah. I think that's true. When you look at what the FBI and the CIA did leading up to the Trump business. Well, so well, yeah. So I always think it's funny because like I grew up in Oklahoma and like even my I grew up my my parents, my my family was democratic and, and were sort of Roosevelt Democrats in many ways. And and uh and I, even though I, we grew up in a sea of Republicans in that era because it was becoming Republican state and, and the town we grew up in was quite conservative. Uh, but, but even my father, who was very liberal in many ways, uh, you know, in most ways was, was like, had this kind of, you know, suspicion of well, a, the Northeast, you know, kind of moneyed interest and, and, and of Washington to some degree, it was a little bit, you know, that there was still that, that leftover kind of sense of like, what, what's the, what's the, what does this government have to do with us? You know, but it's sort of changed these days. And and I know that's still there very deep in the culture in various ways. And even though, even though it feels like we're more national oriented today than, than we were in a way that wasn't true then it was more of a regional country. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably true. Now, you know, one thing about Roosevelt, Roosevelt was an economic liberal. He wasn't necessarily a cultural liberal. Yeah. Well, that's more recent. Yeah. Yeah. So he may have been, he and Eleanor may have been called, but they didn't, they didn't talk about it. They they weren't even necessarily pro-civil rights. Yeah. Right. Because he kept the South in the democratic coalition. Well, you couldn't be at the the level we think of it. Yeah. So I think that's probably true. Sense. Yeah. And you know, that also contributed to the consensus quote unquote of the 1950s because there was there was no there weren't many cultural aspects yeah. of the political debate. It was mainly policy, economics. What do we well, do exactly? Abroad? Well, that's what the the movements of the sixties and seventies sort of exploded the this the left exactly bar, right. the left that, that 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 okay. There's we think there's consensus, but there's not. There's not in these ways, and it kind of and in a way, I think. I mean, I'd love to maybe just give you a few thoughts on uh, on polarization as sort of I've come to think about it and sort of have we define it in our own think tank and, and get, maybe get your response to it a little bit, you know, because it kind of dovetails with some of the things you've said a little bit, which is that we sort of trace it back to the 60s and 70s and these 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 postmodern movements, what I call would call postmodern movements, which was sort of like this whole new cultural set of values came online and it had, it had many different elements and that's probably too long a podcast to talk about all the different elements, but, but suffice to say it, 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 you know, it was, it, it moved, it changed the culture dramatically and it, and it had a whole series of elements. It moved the, we can say it had, I would say it had a a lot of healthy aspects and move the, no one would want to go back to the fifties to the mat. We were talking about mad men before we started this podcast, the mad men world of the, you know, where it's mostly, you know, kind of white men running the the country in a way and that the women don't have the opportunities uh, you know uh, you know, blacks don't have the opportunities. It's not as multicultural. They're just, it's a different world. And we can look back and we can see, wow, coming out of the war, there were so many, positive things about what were what was what was able to happen in that era and the economic growth and the success of of so many of, of the world move forward in so many ways and yet there are all these shadows there are all these shadows and the 60s kind of revealed those shadows in the 70s and and brought them into the light in very healthy ways and we wouldn't want to go back to that world i don't think republicans or democrats would want to go back to that world uh but but it was but it had these downsides as well it had we can see some of those downsides in today's sort of more radical cultural movements, uh, critical race theory, and some movements that have, you know, really broken with any sort of American, even civil rights traditions in some ways. Um, I think of Andrew Del Banco's book about the real American dream. I know you've, you wrote about Del Banco in your book, and Del Banco's a great scholar. I love Del Banco's work. He's a Columbia scholar for listeners who don't know him. He talks about the three eras of American history where the first was sort of God, the second was sort of nation, and then more recently itself, you know, and that that emphasis on self and the way the the investment, the cultural investment in the idea of the nation and this sort of the, the general sort of integration of our, our whole kind of cultural perspective, which sort of coming out of World War II and that, that consensus and the post-war, post-era, post-war era consensus, 
as you say, it kind of disintegrated. And we went from a period of integration to this period of massive disintegration, where now it seems like the self is the authority, not Walter Conkright, or not the government, not, not the authority out there. It's the self is the authority. It's massively multicultural. The self is the authority. It's a period of massive disintegration and diversity as opposed to more integration and everyone trying to get on the same page coming out of World War II. And, and it feels like we're continuing to see that. Everyone has their own truth. Everyone has their own way of seeing reality. Everyone has their own media outlets. Everyone has their, you know. And, and you know, I would argue that part of the reason you saw that polarization happen in the 90s really hit hard with Gingrich and Clinton was because they were formed by the 60s in the way that Reagan wasn't. In a way, even though he, to some extent, was a reaction to that, he wasn't formed by the 60s. Him and 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 the the congressional leaders of the eighties were 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 of another era, you know. They were of the World War II era, exactly. Yeah. And so you don't, even though you saw it in the culture, it wasn't. And to some extent, the Reagan Revolution was a backlash to that. The, the individuals were formed of another era, but but not Clinton, not Gingrich, not that era. And we're now we are the we are the children of that era and that polarization. And so you know, as we will often say a number of years ago, it's going to get worse before it gets better, but. But you see this disinterest. At some point, we have to start to re-find consensus, re-find integration, re-find, you know, you can only go so far in that direction before, like you say, things break down to a level that's where you don't have a nation in the same way anymore. You don't fundamentally have things that keep you in the same boat with other people. And, and, and if we want to be in the same boat, and there's a lot of good reasons to all be in the same boat, at least on some areas, yeah, at some point that we have to turn that and find and find an avenue for integration again. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that with the polarization, you can see that some of the effects and the fact that when the one of the two, when the parties take over, they immediately try to uh, take back or get rid of or repeal what the other party has done. Yeah. So, yeah. you yeah, know, exactly. That's part so, of it. Right. Yeah. So when Trump gets elected, he immediately signs all these orders that we're going to get rid of everything Obama did. No, exactly. Immediately. We're going right. to get rid of we're going to get rid of the Iran. And it happens in foreign policy. We're going to get rid of the Iran. Well, agreement. It's bled over into foreign policy. That, that's yeah. kind of so, new. So in the, the, last the Iran decade. thing, we yeah. get rid of that. We'll sign all these executive orders. We'll pre- repeal Obamacare and we'll do all sorts of other things yeah. and do it totally different. Yeah. When Biden comes in, the first thing he does, he signs a bunch of executive orders. We're going to take everything back. We're going to go back into the Iran deal. We're going back into the Paris business and everything that Trump did at the border. We're going to take back, too. Yeah. Now, eventually, this going back and forth is going to stop working. One of the advantages of consensus is because is that when the next the other party takes over, they flip it just a little bit. Yeah. And try to fix yeah. what was wrong. They don't try yeah. to feel everything. Yeah, Eisenhower exactly. got the new deal in place. Yeah. Yeah. Just so we're not going to spend as right. much money. The only area you see that now I see with China, I think you're starting, you see that a little bit. Like people are, people are keeping that. I don't yeah. see any big move to like, yeah. you know. I but. mean, if you look at the border, I mean, Trump through great effort had stabilized that situation. Yeah. But because uh-huh. Trump did it. They're t- now they're going to create a huge problem down there. Eventually they're going to have to address it. I don't know how they're going to address it. Um, but they kind of, because of this polarization, they created a problem that wasn't there. Mm-hmm. They, mm-hmm. you know, they might've left the damn thing alone. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so anyway, so because of that, you're going to get this flying back and forth and in, greater instability in the country. Yeah. You know, basically the pendulum flying back and forth at more rapid rates. So, yeah. Yes, you're right. We're going to have to find a way to solve this. One, uh, one of the things I often think about that post-war era is that there was a kind of, you know, I, I would suggest, and this sort of comes out of our, again, out of the, some of the work we've done but in, in polarization, but like there was this kind of, cons- there was this kind of alliance between, you know, when Del Banco talks about God, God and nation, another way of expressing that is, is there's, you know, there's this traditional religious character in America that's always been part of a, a strong part of America. And then there's this kind of, you know, the modernist progress, expansion, economic progress, industry, science, technology, 
all of the liberal classical liberalism and free that they're, that they're all more part of modernity in some way. And, and in that era, there was a kind of, I often say there was, a, I feel there was a sort of a truce between the traditional religious part of America. And, and there hasn't always been a truce. There's, they've been at each other's throats some and the sort of more classically liberal, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of economic progress part of America. There was, they, they kind of, they found ways to agree on a lot of things. They found ways to move forward in a lot of things. There was a kind of agreement, but, but then when this happened, when the, when the kind of, the, 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 the civil rights revolutions, the multicultural revolutions of the sixties, because that was based on a, a more limited gr- uh, group of America, those kind of broke that truce. And now, you know, they completely, they sort of shattered that you say shattered consensus, they shattered that consensus. Now, I think you, I can sit back and I can say, there were a lot of good reasons why that consensus needed to be shattered, but we are experiencing the serious downsides of that consensus being shattered. And so that's kind of interesting. So how do you build back? Cause you can't go back to that truth. Once those truces are shattered, you can't really go back. Like you said, you have to find a new way to be, how are we going to be America now? How are we how are we going to be a nation? It's a complete, it's a very different nation than it was, you know. Once you've broken all the pieces, it's hard to put them back together. Yeah, exactly. Even if some of it does it needed to be uh, you know, switched off. Yeah. So yeah, so you know, when you get to that, you know, I don't have a good answer to it. Another new thing that's happened since the 60s is the reach of government, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, people talk about the New Deal revolution, but really what happened in the 60s with the Great Society was much more far reaching than what happened in the 30s. Right. The, yeah. the Great Society yeah. changes. The New Deal was, large. I mean, sorry, the Great Society was big. The war on poverty yeah. had a huge impact on. Plus civil rights legislation. And so, yeah. you know, one of the things that happens now in the 1960s is that the federal government is providing revenue to all sorts of not only states and localities, that's somewhat new, but also yeah. to private charities, private organizations, contracts with business and so on. So the yeah. reach of the government is much bigger now. Yeah. And then because the civil rights laws and other things, they began to say that, you know, unless you do this and that, you can't get federal money. Unless you obey the civil rights laws, you can't get federal money. Yeah. Unless you obey the civil rights laws, your hospitals can't get Medicare. Yeah. You don't get Medicaid. Uh, you don't get transportation aid. So, the, and that happens at the universities as well. They have to do the same thing. So right. now so, suddenly the reach of the federal government right. is far greater. It's sticking its tentacles into basically yeah. every organization in society. And we begin to see it yeah. because of the financial power the feds now have. Right. So, Whereas in another era, you're saying they didn't have, like no. they couldn't, they do that because they want to have these kind of cultural impacts to sort of further those cultural influences that of the, that really came out of the sixties and seventies and were continued on. But in another era, they didn't have the financial impact. They they weren't as involved in all the the various organizations in the country. Whereas now they are, so they can have that impact. Yeah. Yeah, The government could never do all the things. Yeah. That's interesting. It couldn't enforce environmental laws, for example, in the way that right. it does now. Yeah. One of the ways that it enforces all these laws and rules is to say, okay, if you want federal money, you got to do it our way. And if you don't, you don't get the federal money. So right. it's actually, it's not done all that much even by coercion. Yeah, It's not a command mm-hmm. and control thing. It's right. we're going to have, you got, here's the money. If you want it, you got to do it this way. Right. Yeah. That's new. That was new in the 60s. Uh, we didn't have that before uh, we got to the 1960s. So that's, that's also a big change. So, you know, I would say that, you know, the Great Society and what happened in the 60s dwarfs what happened in the 30s in terms so, of the changes it brought about. I uh, makes sense. But in some ways, it was a, a sort of a continuation of that, those Lyndon ideals Johnson, in some yeah, ways. Lyndon right? Johnson looked at Roosevelt mm-hmm. and said, I'm going to outdo Roosevelt. Right. And, and I and I would, you know, I don't know. We, we can look at the Great Society and say it did this or not. But the but like you see the economic growth of America is continuing like poverty. You know, people talk about food deserts and poverty and there is certainly food deserts and poverty and all, a lot of things. But but there were you know, as people say, when, when Robert Kennedy went through the South and his tour of 68, there were kids with distended bellies. I mean, it's a very, there was a very different kind of poverty, you know, in, 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 in that yeah. era. Um, yes, yeah, so uh, I think that's true. Well, I think one of the unfortunate things today is that we don't appreciate the amount of progress we've made mm-hmm. 
really since the the 1960s. I think uh, in race, yeah, and yeah. in wealth and poverty, yeah, and all that. The the amount of progress has been you know significant, right? And, and thank I'm thankful for that progress. I feel like I always feel like the the future changes that we need to make are more are are healthier if they if they, if they come out of the progress we've made and, you know, and, and, and sort of an appreciation and a building on it rather than a sort of, sometimes I hear a rejection of feeling that it's just, it was all pointless or worthless or rejection of it or not willing to acknowledge it. I feel that, that we, even if we need to go further or need to make more progress, it's all, I always feel it's healthier if we can acknowledge the progress we've made, it sort of gives us a more a more accurate, more truth based reality to stand on as we sort of leap forward, even if we need to leap forward. Yeah. Well, I would say that's one of the problems with the with the fringe of the diversity movement, which is basically that America was worthless up until like ten years ago because right. of the way it treated, women, ago, right? it treated blacks, what it did to the environment. Look at the Indians, yeah. all the rest. And you're right. It would be better if instead of a rejectionist idea, we said, okay, we've made a lot of progress, but here's the other progress we have to make. Yeah, exactly. I always said that fight for an evolutionary idea, not a revolutionary idea and not a rejectionist idea, but a kind of an evolutionary ideal of like, we need to go, we need to move forward and we need to do it in various ways, but we need to do it from a background of appreciating our history not we don't have to and then we get into these crazy polarities where we either have to like accept it as being like you know all great or we have to sort of imagine it's all all evil i mean i'm exaggerating a little bit but not that much you know can't we just see it can't we see it in context can't we continue to try to move forward anyway well i think a country that's devoted to progress as the united states is yeah Obviously, is if you take that ethic and you look to the past, the past is always going to be worse than the present. Yeah, right. obviously we made progress yes, right. beyond that in many yeah. different ways. Yeah. So the ethic of progress does require some degree of tolerance toward the past. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what it's all about. We're getting better. We right. know we had some problems. Right. We're getting better. But the idea that we're going to st- take a standpoint today and reject the entire past, I don't believe that's even consistent with a, a, a doctrine of progress. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's a consistent with a different kind of doctrine. Yeah, that's almost uh, a more religious doctrine. That almost that's harkens more radical back. or something. It's more radical. It almost harkens back to I think of a religious doctrine where you know you you have a kind of a messianic millennialism exactly. or something. Yeah. It's kind of millennialism in the form of a cultural a perfectionist kind yeah, of yeah it's kind of a perfectionist yeah. doctrine, which is almost a religious doctrine in some way. And and I agree. Yeah, that's uh um Okay, uh, it's I, I could go on for a long time. I want to keep you, but Appreciate but maybe just before we go, what yeah, happy to be on your program? Oh, Thank that's you. great. Um, well, before we go, maybe just the last question. So, in James Pearson's view of the future of the left and the future of the right, if you could wave your magic wand, how would you like to see the right evolve in American politics? How would you like to see the left evolve in American politics? <laughs> assuming they're not, assuming one isn't going to vanquish the other anytime soon, which I don't think is going to happen. Yes. Well, you know, I, I uh, just in a nutshell, I would say I'd like to see them evolve to the point where they see disagreement mm. and not hatred. Mm. So that these two sides don't represent different countries, but they, you know, represent somewhat different ideas as to how the policies government should pursue, mm-hmm. as opposed to a kind of a totalist rejection of the other, yeah. which is somewhat yeah. where we've had, we're headed. Yeah. And as a cause of all this polarization, I think almost by definition, government has to operate somewhat incrementally. Yeah. It's not going to be revolutionary, quote unquote, except in exceptional circumstances. Yes. And citizens are not going to put up with a permanent revolutionary situation in their government. Yeah. It has to be somewhat gradual and incremental. And our rhetoric tends to overwhelm the the incrementalist aspect of all these, uh, the way government has to operate. That's interesting, yeah. So, yes, yeah, so I'd like to see a somewhat of a return to incrementalism. I'd also like to see a little bit of a truce in the cultural wars. Yeah, yeah. Which is also uh, driving this. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I don't know what that would be. It, would be, it might be out of, mind, out of sight, out of mind. <laughs> let, people, let individuals kind of decide these things for themselves right, and let's not right. try to impose it. Right. <clears throat> people will change their minds and their habits gradually, but not overnight. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, yeah. you know, all these, I think maybe some of these things can happen. Yeah. Maybe you can get a president who, rather than being an, an ideologue or a partisan, could be a kind of a nationalist yeah. uh, or patriotic president. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. We've had, we tend to have ideological presidents, Reagan and Obama, or partisan presidents. But uh, by partisan president, you mean, mean like, somebody just representing his party. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. Yeah. So in the, our entire history, I think we've had two patriotic presidents. Huh. Washington, That's interesting. Washington yeah. would be one. Yeah. Eisenhower would be the other. Really? That's interesting. interesting you mean, by that, you mean presidents that just, they're, they're almost, they don't have almost, a big agenda. They don't I have a big agenda and they're not party oriented. Yeah. So of course, Washington is elected before there are even parties. Yeah. Right. They don't so, even exist. They, they it's easy. It was easier. <laughs> and of course, you know, Eisenhower, nobody even knew what party he was in. Both parties <laughs> are trying to compete to get him. <laughs> I guess that's what happens when you're a military hero. You can kind of be that in a way, yeah. in a way so, that it's hard. Uh, it would be useful to have something like that again. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, I suppose Trump might've been that kind of character. Well, I, I, th I mean, I think maybe this is giving them too much credit, but giving the people voted for him too much credit at, at their best. Some people I think voted for him in an angry rejectionist, no doubt for whatever reasons. Uh, but I think, you know, maybe that some people were hoping that he could be a figure that would sort of rise above right. the political fray and be unbeholden to any, any particular, you know, I think there was a hope that he could be a kind of, I don't know, maybe it would be a Teddy Roosevelt or maybe like you say, an I, I mean, Eisenhower is a particular time. I, that was a, of a particular time, but someone who, who seemed to sort of transcend the political distinctions of his day but he was just a different uh, figure was, i i wouldn't you know, so you know, trump was, was he was never going to be that figure i would say but maybe the conditions just weren't possible i mean if you have two parties at each one, one another's throats you, you almost it's can't very hard it's very hard it. like the the person almost has to come out of the conditions right we need yeah, a, so he you know trump's trump looked at this thing and said i gotta go with the republicans and i'm gonna go all the way with them which is what he did you know teddy but you can see i like what you say though that there there is a that that ultimately that that moment, and I, I feel like some of these moments have to be driven by the culture rather than driven by the politician. You know, I, right. sometimes the politician can't come first; otherwise, it just doesn't work. Because no matter, they just get spit out of the system. But nevertheless, when when the cultural moment comes, you're kind of saying we need a we need a politician that can sort of that can authentically really rise above the the partisanship of the moment and represent the country in a different kind of way. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. And maybe set the stage for the future. Now, you know, unfortunately, this is probably going to come out of some crisis of the kind of we just talked about in the stock market or interest rates or inflation or that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Let's but hope it doesn't come out of a war. We don't want a war. That's that's for sure. When Trump got elected, my, you know, my wife and other friends said, oh, God, this is going to be terrible. I said, we can get through it as long as he doesn't start a war. Yeah. Right. We can get through right. this. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, fortunately, he did. He didn't, he, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't want yeah. to get engaged in foreign enterprises. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's hard to tell, but I, you know, I'm glad you're, you're thinking about this and pursuing it. And, uh, you know, maybe some of your other guests will have some better answers. Than <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming on and let's, let's, uh, maybe we can in a year or so, or some, some period yeah. of time when we've gotten, we, we've gotten through a new, we've gotten past COVID and we'll, we kind of see the future maybe beyond COVID a little clearer. Maybe we could talk again and 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 speak about where where we see it then. Excellent, thank you. All right, I want to thank my guest today, Jim Pearson, for joining me today on the podcast. And once again, his book is called "Shattered Consensus: The Rise and Decline of America's Post-War Political Order." And for those of you who are interested in following this podcast more closely, just a reminder that you can always sign up for my newsletter, which has all the latest information about the podcast. And you can sign up for that newsletter at carterphipscom slash newsletter. All right, that's it for today's episode. I look forward to the next time. Thank you very much.